We're going to start this week's show with something we probably normally wouldn't cover, and that's the Navy Yard shooting. Ian Shapira is a reporter for the Washington Post. He was covering the events of that day. So, Ian, when this news broke, um, can can you just set the scene, what it was like in the newsroom? Yeah, no problem. So the, the shootings occur in, in, in the morning, like I think around 8, between 8 and 9, and when you get into the newsroom, the place is totally buzzing. You've got a, a lot of people on the phones. Uh, you've got editors uh, and reporters conferring with each other in big huddles. Uh, you've got multiple meetings, uh, and phones are going off the hook, and um, you even sometimes see editors and reporters walking very fast or even uh, running. Uh, that being said, um, you know, when I got in, one of the things we all were wondering about were who were the victims. And uh, we knew that we would not get that list until very late, uh, if, if maybe not even that day. Right. Um, so you know, it wasn't until late in the day, around 5.30, when I got this name. The Post got the name of someone, Sylvia Frazier, who may have been a victim, may have been a witness to the shooting. They didn't know. Ian got in touch with Sylvia's sister, Wendy Edmonds. Now, Wendy said she hadn't heard from Sylvia, and they were planning to have a prayer service that night at their parents' house. Ian asked if he could come and and sit with the family while they waited for news. I, I went to the parents' house in Lanham, Maryland, which is in Prince George's County. And it's a level home. James and Eloise Frazier lived there. When I got there, Wendy, the, one of the sisters, greeted me, the person I, was, I spoke with on the phone, and she sat me down on a couch and said, I'm going to put you by the living room. And, um, you know, and, you know, and I said, no worries. I said, I'm, I'm here just to really, really just watch. I'm here really just to observe. I'm not going to talk much. I'm really, I'm really not going to say much at all. I just want to be here. So she I went upstairs where the living room was. And the parents are sitting on the couch, and they're they're just they're they're somewhat in decent spirits, but they're definitely glued to the television. Uh, there are other relatives and friends are there, and they're constantly, you know, their heads are bowed, and they're they've got their right hand, and they're thumbing through their iPhone, and um, you know, the TV's on, and it's NBC with Brian Williams, and it can be very surreal in a way because all of a sudden the lead story goes from being uh, about the shooting to now the family's listening about Syria. And it's just sort of bizarre in a way. And, and you're in the back and you're watching them go through this. Every time a phone rings, you think it might be news, but then it's not news. And uh, cell phones are beeping and text messages and they're, you know, have you heard anything? Or um, the phone call rings, but it's nobody important. It's just someone confirming the father's doctor's appointment the next day. Yeah. Um, that kind of thing. And I've got my laptop. I've got a little little MacBook Air laptop and propped up on the dining room table on a notepad and pen, and I'm just writing down what I see and what I hear, and occasionally I'll ask Wendy a few questions, biographical details about the family and what's been going on that day, but otherwise I'm, I'm hearing clear. Are people uh, engaging with you? Are they, are they talking to you and asking you questions? Yeah, some, some are, but I, I made it clear to them that I, I didn't really... You know, I didn't. I didn't need to. They didn't need to talk to me, and they could go about their business. And anyone who I thought was going to be an actual character in the story, I would make sure I introduced myself to that person, and um, you know, get their spelling of their name, and, and tell them what I'm doing, just to make sure they were okay with being in any kind of story. So I imagine then, uh, throughout the day or throughout throughout your time there, I imagine people are arriving. How did they explain who you were? Um, the sister sort of w- would tell people, and and. You know, 
uh, it, it was fine. And sometimes they would come up to me and they would give me like a weird look and I would just explain who I was and they were like, I totally get it. Um, you, you know, is, is, uh, as bizarre as that sounds, I mean, some families, you know, want, often want um, reporters there to bear witness. Um, not everybody's the same. Not everybody feels that way. Some people may feel like that would be inappropriate, but other families would feel like the attention on their family um, gives them either some sort, some form of uh, feeling that that their voices are being heard. And I think that was what that that's one of the main values of what that was for them. And I think about you're you're in somebody's home and they're in this incredibly intimate, painful waiting game. Is it? difficult to, to not sort of become part of the vigil, I guess? That's why you try to stay quiet. You try to blend in. Um, I mean, obviously, if there's, you know, you, you pray and hope to yourself that, that nothing bad is, that, that she's alive at the end, that they'll get good news. Um, one of the luxuries of being a regular old newspaper reporter is that, you know, you're not there with a camera and you're not there with um, a big microphone and boom and, you know, makeup artists and all that, you're, you can blend in pretty easily when you're a newspaper reporter or a magazine writer. All you have is a little notebook and pen or even a little laptop. So so eventually um, the, the family does get news about Sylvia. Can, can you tell us how that played out? Sure. By about 8.45, I had finished writing my story uh, for the Post about this family's weight. And the end of that story... You know, just and it ended with the with um, the family. You know, wondering where was their daughter? They they had no confirmation. The parents did not have internet access in their house, and I didn't have an air card. So I got I darted out of the house, told them I'd come back. I found a McDonald's which has free Wi-Fi, and I emailed the story to my editor. She edited it, um, and then around by around nine thirty uh, or nine forty. I um, I got back. I drove. I started driving back to to the house. And when I opened, when I knocked on the door, I heard no answer. And then knocked again. And then Wendy came down the stairs. She opened the door, and um, she said, "He killed my sister." And you know, my heart sank. And uh, I just, I, I just said, "I'm I'm so incredibly sorry." Did you Did you go in then at that moment when you I came did back? go in. I went upstairs, and I, you know, I. Shook the hands of the parents, and I said, "Your condolences. I'm so sorry." And um, you know, I, I I called my editor from the from their kitchen to let them to let her know what happened. You know, the family. I, I asked. I said, "You are you sure you want me to stay? I can. I'm happy to leave." And they said, "No, you're, you're just doing your job. You get it." But then a few minutes later, they I, I sensed that they wanted their privacy. And I, so we all agree that I should, I should, I should take off. So I did, and then I got in my car. I called my editor. We changed the ending of the story. We tacked on the new ending, which was that she had, had been killed. She had been killed. It, it's such an unusual um, relationship that you have with this family, because uh, unlike so many relationships, you, you're the, the entire span of your time with them is on one of the most uh, intense and sad uh, times in, you know, the history of that family. And then, it, you know, it starts and then it, it ends. Yeah, you were there with them in this very sensitive time period. And, 
But I think that, I'd like to think at least that, that people who read that story, and maybe even those in the government uh, who read it, could see that no family should have to go through what they went through, that the parents shouldn't have to wait till more than 12 hours to find out some decent level of detail of their, uh, what happened to their daughter. Well, I just I, I keep thinking about what it must have been like to be there um, while everybody is anxious and waiting. Did you ever get the sense that some people maybe appreciated having you there as a, as a kind of distraction? You know, I couldn't tell. I think uh, um, I think that some. I think a lot of people didn't really kind of ignored me. I think you know, frankly, I think that I think that, um, I, think that I, I think I was more ignored than anything uh, because you know I'm the least of their concerns that, mm-hmm. in that moment. I, I definitely felt as if I felt grateful in, in one way to be there because I, I felt honored in a way to be there because that they would they would trust me to. To not make the tense moment any worse, you know, you just felt like you were watching something that you'll never forget because it doesn't get much more intimate than that. Well, Ian, thanks so much for for talking to us about this. No problem. We will link to Ian Shapiro's piece about Sylvia Fraser on our website, howtodoeverything.org. This is How to Do Everything. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. And as we speak, people are lining up outside Apple stores waiting to buy the very new iPhone 5S and 5C. And people are very excited about this fingerprint sensor. What this means is we no longer have to enter a four-digit password to unlock our phone. We just put our finger on it. Now, by our calculations, that can save you between 0.4 and 0.6 seconds. So that's between 0.4 and 0.6 extra seconds you have to spend in your day. What are you going to do with all that extra time? I'm Andrew Dickerson. I'm a graduate student in mechanical engineering at uh, Georgia Institute of Technology. Okay, Andrew, what have you found that you can do in less than a second? I found that a furry mammal, so a furry mammal being a dog or a cat, a mouse, a lion, a bear, can shake about 70% of the water trapped in its fur off of its body in less than a second. So the, the classic thing we see when a dog uh, you know, gets out of the lake and shakes off, it is 70% dry in less than a second. Yes. So uh, you know, a dog can shake maybe four, five, six times per second. So within half a second, it's about 70% dry. Wow. How, how did you test this? Well, first thing we did was wet some animals and <laughs> film them with a high-speed camera. We, we, we also put some, la- uh, some mouse, some mice, excuse me, on a scale in the lab, and we could weigh them before they shook and after they shook. That's amazing. And, and I, I guess I didn't realize that mice do this. I'm yeah, in fact, they, they shake off at a, at a rate of about 30 times per second. Now, they don't actually shake 30 times. They make shake three to five times. But it happens so quick that if you blink when they do it, you'll miss it. Wow. And in fact, it happens so it's such a high rate of speed that they're able to generate about 70 times the force of gravity on their fur to shake that water out. So, Andrew, uh, I imagine you've tried this. How long does it take you to shake yourself off? Oh, I'm a terrible shaker. Yeah. Uh, every human is a terrible shaker. But that's okay because we're not hairy, 
so generally we don't hold nearly as much water on our bodies as a densely coated mammal would. And and we have towels and thumbs. Well, yes, we do. So if you're a dog, you can spend your extra half second a day, uh, you know, drying off. Right. Uh, drying off as you uh, log into your iPhone 5D. Okay. My name is Gustavo Diaz-Jerez. I'm a musician and a researcher at the University of Malaga, where we have developed a computer that can write uh, music, classical music, in, in, in less than a second. And is, it, is the music good? Would, would I enjoy listening to it? Well, it, that depends on your, on your upbringing and your musical education and background. Some people will enjoy it very much. It depends on, your, you know, on what you are used to, to listen. I, I listened to, uh, to one of the, the songs, and I, it, I found it pretty haunting. There was something haunting about it. So you you have written music. Uh, So when I I imagine it takes you a lot longer when you uh, think about the computer creating, you know, a complete piece of music in a fraction of a second. Are you jealous? Do you wish you could do that? (laughs) I'm, I'm very glad you asked me that because, you know, I just finished a piece for orchestra and it took me, actually I did it very, pretty fast to tell you the truth because I, I, it took me like three and a half months. <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually not that bad. Okay, so now there's two, two things. Uh, you can dry off or if you're a computer, compose a symphony. It's amazing how much time we're spending. Hi, I'm Jim Tomey. How are you? Hey, how's it going? I'm okay. Everything's hey. going great. I, I, now, if you don't know, Jim Tomey is a future Hall of Fame baseball player. He hit over 600 home runs in his career. 612. I know. So, Jim, what have you found you can do uh, in less than a second? Uh, I would say hit a fastball. So it, it takes uh, less than half a second to go from the pitcher's hand uh, to the catcher. I just wonder, when you're standing there, are you seeing the ball the whole time? You're seeing it, but then I think there's also pitchers, I'll be dead honest, I did not see the ball at all. And, <laughs> you know, and that's the uniqueness of it. But it's, it's, it's I think, the greatest gift of being a, a, you know, I think an athlete or, in our case, a baseball player is, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of gifted in a sense that you, you know, you kind of grew up through all these steps and you were able to kind of, you know, your your hand-eye, your fast-twitch fiber muscles were were able to do it. And, and you know, and you also, I, I feel this way, you can also practice at being a good fastball hitter. Nowadays, they've got these drills called the tennis ball drills where they'll shoot the tennis ball out of a big PVC pipe tube, and it'll stay straight, and you have to read the number on the tennis ball or a color. You what? might, you know, they might put a black dot on the tennis ball or a red dot or a green dot, you know, and then as that tennis ball is coming in at 105 or 98, whatever you set it at, you're like picking that up. Wow. And yeah. I mean, personally, it does, the, the, the number on the, on the speed gun doesn't matter if you're ready. That's the way I feel. Well, can you tell the difference though? Because I, you know, I think about. I wonder for you, is there any difference oh. between ninety nine and a hundred? Say, no, 
No question. <laughs> no question. I mean, well, well, I mean, no, I, I shouldn't say there's a difference between 92 and 97, 98, 99 and 100. I mean, okay. To me, there's a big difference between it's kind of that next level up. You know, when a guy's throwing 95 to 97, it's really hard. Okay. When a guy throws 100, uh, you better really get in. <laughs> you better really be ready to go. Well, is and there... that, that's why we that's why we fail so much. That's why, you know, if you if you succeed three out of ten times, you know that's really good in our sport. Well, is there any way you can recover if uh, you're looking for a curveball, say, and a fastball is coming in? Can you no. can you catch no, up? No, no, no. If I'm sitting on a breaking ball and a guy's throwing that hard, no, I cannot get to a fastball throwing that hard. I can look for the fastball, but get to a hanging breaking ball or slider. Yes. I often I wonder if it's the same because I've never been up there, of course. But I I wonder if like when you are sitting on a fastball and you take that big swing and then this seventy mile an hour curveball comes in. Yes. Is that the same as like stepping on a stair that isn't there? <laughs> kind of. Yes. You go. You kind of go jelly legish. You go. You know. Yeah. I agree. I agree. It's like. Oh my God! Like, like, where was that? Like, where did that come from? Because you're geared up, and then yeah, it would be like stepping and not having the step there. Yeah. That's kind of the feeling. I would, I would agree. That's a good call there. Yeah, the difference is no one's watching me do that. Everybody's watching <laughs> you do that. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, this has been great. Thanks so much for your time, Jim. Oh, no problem, guys. We got a note from Jennifer. She says she listens to our podcast while working the night shift as a cop patrolling the city. Jennifer, these next 15 seconds are for you. Gonna be some sweet coming down the night so she's working the night shift. Yeah, she's on the night shift. I bet there's a lot of people out at night doing stuff, like working on things. Working on mysteries without any clues. Working on a night moves. Do you think that what happens if uh, she's out on patrol and someone calls in? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess you got to take that call. That does it for this week's show. What'd you learn, Ian? Well, I learned how much I can accomplish in uh, what is ultimately just a total of one and a half seconds. Do you think we could do all those things? Uh, if I was a, a robot dog. Playing for the Yankees? Yep. I, I was surprised after watching uh, Jim Tomey play baseball. What a kind man he is. He's a, just a sweetheart. He's a, he's a real gentleman. He's a gentleman, gentleman athlete. I, I just wonder how different things would have been for him if he had taken his attitude towards his fellow man onto the baseball diamond. If that same kindness, he took that same kindness uh, up to bat with him. Yeah, he's just sort of complimenting the ball as it goes by. Nice laces there, ball. Yeah, let me give you a hand. You can do it. Yeah, he would charge the mound to, to shake the pitcher's hand. How to Do Everything is produced by Blythe Haga with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is Ashley Miller. She just turned 30. Her birthday was last week. Happy birthday, Ashley. Good work. We also want to thank our illustrator and visual artist extraordinaire, Justin Witte. He came up with the uh, home spoil-proofing kit you can find on our website, 
howtodoeverything.org. Get us your questions at howto at npr.org. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.